Is mainstream school failing your kids? The pandemic, with all the changes to schooling and daily life, is a moment of opportunity to rethink the educational path that works best for you and for your kids. So the question is, how can we as parents find alternative solutions that aren't necessarily having to do it all ourselves or pay for programs that we can't afford? I'm Jerry Kirk. And I'm Graham Kirk. Join us as we talk with families thriving on their own path We shared practical tips, wins, and challenges they've been through to help you on yours. We interview educational experts and parent entrepreneurs with education solutions for the modern age, so parents wanting a better alternative can make confident, informed choices. Welcome to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. You're ready for change. And so are we. Welcome back to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. I'm super excited today for a number of reasons. First one is I just happened to notice that this is interview 50 on the Modern Education Movement podcast, which is pretty awesome. You know, we started this back in in October of last year and been really privileged to have some amazing guests on the show who are doing world-changing things. And today is really no different. I have the pleasure of chatting with someone I've known for and worked with for a long time. Luke Holman, he's honestly one of the most energetic, thoughtful people I know on the planet and definitely has some some good opinions on a lot of a lot of important topics. We first met and worked together during my days in the software industry as an agile coach. And I also had the privilege to help facilitate uh, one of Luke's budget games for the city of San Jose and you know this is where citizens they they engaged in prioritizing you know the city's multi-million dollar budget by playing this interactive game, this collaborative game to try and spend limited funds on a range of budgetary options which at the time was was just unheard of. And now he's the founder and CEO of First Root Incorporated, which is a benefit corporation that is devoted to creating greater economic equality. Now, and that's a really complex problem. And Luke recognizes that it can't be solved individually, that we have to work together to come up with ideas and solutions and then work together to make those happen. So First Root's approach is they're giving youth financial literacy in a unique, fun way through something called participatory budgeting. And there's more to it than that, and we'll certainly delve into that on the, on the podcast. Now, his, his audacious goal is to have student groups in 1 million schools globally each have $1,000 to budget, and then watch what happens when youth control a billion dollars in capital. I think that's a super awesome a- ambition. And by the time this episode launches, Luke and his team will also have a version of participatory budgeting for families so they can they can also work out plans for, on money decisions from things like vacations and charitable giving. So today we're going to explore how your family and school can tap into the power of participatory budgeting to build financial literacy skills and also to get youth more involved and engaged in solving the problems that matter. Luke, so good to see you again. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Jerry. I'm really looking forward to this. And it's especially fun to do a show like this with a friend, someone I have worked with, someone who, when we say we've worked together, we should qualify that by saying the work that we did in San Jose was pro bono. Jerry and I and all of the other facilitators in that endeavor were not compensated. We did that voluntarily out of our free will and our commitment to helping cities and citizens solve these really complex budgetary problems. In addition to that work, Jerry and I have also done consulting together in 
a for-profit manner for companies. And so I wanted to point out that sometimes people think that we just charged the city for that work and we didn't. That was all done philanthropically. And, and I think that that's an important thing to realize is that a lot of what is happening in the modern education movement is this really interesting mix of, well, what do I pay for? Why would I pay for it? When do I pay for it? What should I do for free? What's the right choice for me, for my school, for my community, for my family? And I think that that's a very interesting set of options. And we can talk about business model choices as part of the, the, the ability to create a sustainable company. Yeah, absolutely. And you've had really um, a long storied career. I mean, you always consider to me one of the one of the, the big names, one of the pioneers in a lot of ways in the agile software space. You've written a number of books. You know, you've you've been a, a leader in, in the space. You've had a long storied career. Um, started up your own company, which then got acquired. You know, so you've done all these 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 amazing things. And along that way, you know, not I would say not taking the easy path, right? There's lots of ways you could have done things differently that would have been a whole lot easier, you know, trying to launch innovation games and then, you know, the Every Voice Engaged Foundation, which came out through the the budget games. So why not just kind of like ease back a little and, uh, you know, kind of enjoy life uh, post acquisition and, and uh, give Luke some some rest? Well, that's a good question. And my kids, so I have four kids. And like you as a parent who cares about their, not only their own children's future, but the future of other children. My kids actually get mad at me and they're old enough now. A couple of weeks ago, First Root did our first conference. But of course, in typical Luke fashion, I had to make it different and crazy. So we decided that since participatory budgeting and financial literacy and civic engagement and the lessons we want to teach kids is global, and we do see participatory budgeting used globally, that we would run a 24-hour global conference starting at GMT zero and running 24 hours straight, one speaker every hour for 24 hours. And so it's GMT zero, which in California time is, uh, I think it's uh, six o'clock or seven o'clock at night. And my youngest child comes into the room and she said, dad, are you really going to pull an all-nighter? I said, yeah. Are you going to eat? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'll figure out food. Dad, you're, you're working again. You're, you're doing all this crazy work. You shouldn't do all this. And you know, the next thing I know, she comes and brings me dinner. And she makes sure I'm taken care of. And it's really sweet. Uh, Danella is, let's see, Danella is going to be 16. So she's 15 and a half. Okay. And um, how about the rest of your kids? Uh, 16, 18, 20, and just about 21. So I'm an Agilist, right? We had a release every 20 months. So we, we were on a release train. <laughs> you man, and you, you managed to keep that schedule. That's, that's yeah, we kept the schedule for a few years, uh, and it was great. It's, it's, and they're great kids, and it's super fun. But I don't feel that I am ready to retire because I think the needs of our children and our communities are such that while people can make contributions, they should make contributions. I'm confident that one day I will retire or slow down, but I'm too motivated, too excited. I feel blessed that I get to do work I love with people I respect. So it doesn't feel like work all the time and it, it's not onerous and it's often quite engaging to be candid. I, it's something you look forward to and you get excited about. And I, I know that not everyone has a job, 
that they look forward to and get excited about. That's the reality of work. I haven't always had jobs that I got excited about. Like growing up, I was a janitor one time and that was not a really exciting job. (laughs) But at this stage in my life, I do get to do work that keeps me excited and and keeps me motivated and and keeps me going. And and that's a gift. I feel like it's a gift. I'm curious about something you just you just mentioned there. It feels like it was a good opener to delve into a little bit more. And you talked about can versus should getting involved in and engaged. And you know, it seems like a lot of what you've done over the years and, and now with First Route, it is really about getting people more engaged. Well, I love to look at this from from two angles. One is how to get people more engaged, but also why should people get more engaged, I guess. You have to be careful. I'm going to start with the one to be careful about. You have to be careful about why should someone get engaged? Because if you go the wrong angle on that, you'll turn into a judgment conversation. And this relates to the notion of personal finance. It's it's a skill that you have to develop. But one of the skills you need to develop is not judging how other people spend money. So for example, I have some really good friends and they live in California with me and they like wine. And they like really good wine. And really good wine is typically really expensive wine. And that's, we love going over to their house for dinner because they buy really good wine. Like good enough that you'd notice the difference, right? And my wife and I would never spend the amount of money on wine that they spend on wine. But they don't have kids. They made a lifestyle choice to not have kids. So where we made a lifestyle choice to have kids you know, if I didn't have kids, maybe I'd get better wine. <laughs> so from the outside, looking at someone spending wine and then comparing it to your choices, you could be judging them and you don't want to judge how other people spend money. Similarly, I don't want to answer the question of why should people get involved in a way that could be construed as me judging what people get involved in. North America, and I mean North America inclusively, I, I mean Mexico, the United States, Canada, these are cultures that are all very philanthropic and community oriented, especially the Latinx culture. The Latinx culture is actually quite deeply motivated to be philanthropic within their family. And in fact, I recently read some research where they found that Latinx people want as much financial literacy as say Caucasian people, but the motivations were very different. Caucasian people tend to want to have independent kids. So I want my kids to be independent. To be independent, they need to be financially literate so they can make financial choices. Latinx kids say, I want to be financially literate so I can stay involved and be a part of and be involved in and contributing to my family. So rather than using financial literacy as a break, they're using it as a support. So as you point out, it could be lots of different, lots of different motivators to, to get engaged, to, to learn skills. So. Right. And, and so we should say, so why should someone get involved? Well, again, I don't want to answer it in a way that's judgmental, but I think that there's a couple of reasons to get involved. First, if you are a parent and chances are people listening to this podcast are parents, you probably do want your child to be prepared to live an adult life. And Being prepared to live in an adult life in our modern society requires financial literacy. In a hundred years ago, we didn't need classes in financial literacy because our options were extremely limited. You had banking accounts, you had proto-checking accounts, 
you had no debit cards, you had no credit cards. If you got a mortgage on your home, that's an if, but if you got a mortgage on your home, you had one kind of mortgage, 30 year straight, you know, relatively straightforward interest, et cetera. Credit cards started in the 50s and over time became an industry that at times is pretty deleterious, pretty negative in its impact to society in terms of the manipulation of large banks to induce people to acquire credit that keeps them paying enormous streams of money to banks. I don't have the numbers for Canada, Jerry, but in the United States, Americans are paying more than $200 billion a year in bank and credit card fees. Like that's really a, think amazing. about what would it mean to the, yeah, the United States economy if roughly... $15 billion a month that's being paid to banks were being spent on infrastructure, being spent on our cities, our communities, being spent to uh, create more educational opportunities. It's, it's really frightening. And what's really interesting is the banks have coined a new term for the people they're targeting. They call them the affluent poor. People who get a, a raise and then the bank convinces them to increase their lifestyle by giving them more credit. So is that partly what's what's motivating you to, to tackle the financial literacy for youth now? Or what would you say is, well, is, is really driving Well, there's a deeper set of reasons. So why should you get involved is our kids need to know how to live a modern life. And living a modern life includes being financially literate. What drives me even further was, is that it, there's a book called The Spirit Level from some social science researchers in the UK. I would highly recommend this book. And what these researchers did was they correlated economic equality to health and social factors like trust, obesity, opiate addiction, alcoholism, incarceration rates, homicide rates, and it really the important stuff. And they found that the more financially unequal the society, the worse it performs in health and social outcomes. And the United States is the world's most unequal society, and we perform the worst in the United States on these dimensions. So part of this is to trying to identify a, a, as an engineer by training, I wanna do root cause analysis on problems. So for example, the root cause of a lot of these issues is a lack of financial literacy. Low and moderate income people are good at cash flow management, but not necessarily good at the tools of wealth creation and financial literacy. Those are two different concepts. So that's a deep motivation for me. I, this notion of this tax from the traditional financial institutions and this notion of spending extraordinary sums of money on incarceration or chronic disease that is actually, it doesn't seem like it's correlated to financial equity, but it is. And to the tune of McKinsey recently published a report that said that if we can close the wealth and income gap, we can create 2.5 to $4 trillion. That's trillion of dollars, not billion, trillions of dollars of economic benefit in, in GDP. And what that means is that, curiously, this is not an issue about poor people. This is a societal issue because if you went up to any CEO 
of any large corporation or moderate corporation, or uh, you, you mentioned many of your listeners are entrepreneurial. If you went up to any entrepreneur and said, would you like to have four to 6% better US GDP? Pretty much everyone would say yes, because that benefits everyone. So part of this underlying motivation for First Root is this notion that it will make everything better. But what's interesting, and I, I got to close with one other thing, is this is two-thirds of my motivation. One, the other third of my motivation is civics. As parents, we need to prepare our children for citizenship in the country that they're in. I don't care, actually, if you're Democrat or Republican or Libertarian. What I care is that you are engaged in your community and in your society as a good member of society. And every democracy, regardless of its structure, from a majority representation to a direct representation, to ranked choice voting, to in Canada vote swapping, to the United States with a republic, it's an informed and engaged citizenry that democracy serves. And we are no longer teaching children civic engagement, and we're no longer creating experiences project-based learning experiences that let the kids know that their voice matters. Participatory budgeting in schools, and we should define this, it's the process where we, well, participatory budgeting is a democratic egalitarian process in which we give money to kids and we support them as the kids choose how to spend that money in their school. And most of the time, the money that they spend is an investment in their own education. It consists of five stages. There's a planning stage where the kids decide the theme and who is involved. So the theme might be school safety, school education. Who's involved? Do we want the parents involved? Most of the time, no, but sometimes yes. Do we want the teachers involved? Most of the time, no, sometimes yes. So the kids are in choice of who's involved. Like they're designing that process and, and engaging in the civic discussion of who should be involved. How do, you, how do you even go about doing that? I mean, that sounds like a, that in and of itself could be a, a really hard thing to try to figure out. Well, we have a curriculum that's on our website that supports teachers in implementing participatory budgeting in their schools. There's also additional resources around the web. Uh, New York City has a curriculum called Civics for All which is a civics curriculum based on participatory budgeting. PB Scotland, Participatory Budgeting Scotland, has a variety of resources with kind of the European flavor of uh, PB, the University of Chicago. All of these resources are available on the First Root website also, so you can kind of see everything all at once with our website. But it, it is a conversation that a teacher can lead with the students. And yeah, it's a tough conversation, but it's an important conversation. We did a project with Hegel Elementary School in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, fifth graders. So three fifth grade classrooms. And when we went to the classrooms, we asked them, do you want to have each classroom privately do the budget with an equal portion, or do you want to have all three classrooms work together? So the kids said, well, let's create a Google form and let's vote. So they created a Google form and they voted and they said, we want each classroom to be separate. Okay, so each classroom got $500. Halfway through the project, as the kids were talking about what was going on on the playground, 
they realized that if they came together, they would have a $1,500 budget and they could have bigger ideas because they had more money. So then they went back to their teachers and said, we've changed our mind. We want everyone to go into the same participatory budgeting program and we want to combine our budgets. Well, okay, but that's an insight. You know, there's a phrase that I use about training and teaching, and I love saying this and people can steal it. If you're listening to this, feel free to steal the phrase. What I like to say is you can't read a bike, meaning you can't learn how to ride a bicycle by reading a book about riding bicycles. Right. Kind of like no one becoming ever a parent. Has. <laughs> right. Good luck with that. Right. Yeah. You can't read a book about parenting. You can use it to somewhat prepare for parenting, but it's hard to you know be prepared unless you're in the throes. So th- let's go back to civics, right? Because that's one third of the issue. We've seen some pretty horrific outcomes lately in American politics. I believe part of that is because our kids no longer believe that democratic practices work because they have no direct experience of what a democratic positive experience is. They don't have any positive democratic experiences. So for example, Tufts University reports that 24% of millennials think that democracy is a bad way to run the country. If you think about that, one in four millennials say democracy is bad. Now, they don't have a better replacement, but because they think democracy is ineffective, and you cannot necessarily blame them given the state of American yeah, politics, right? It's, it's, it's not working. It's pretty dysfunctional. But what we find is when we do participatory budgeting in schools, especially in high schools, that positive experience motivates kids to register to vote, motivates kids to get involved in their community, and motivates kids to actually vote when voting opportunities are present because they went through that process. So let me finish the process. I'm jumping around a little bit and I don't want to lose the listeners. Going back to the process of participatory budgeting. Phase one is the planning phase. Who's involved? Phase two is ideation. The kids create proposal ideas. Phase three is proposal refinement. The most promising ideas are actually refined into specific proposals. So you might have an idea like, I wanna get a 3D printer for the school. The refinement phase says, okay, what's the actual budget? What printer are you gonna get from what location? Did you include supplies? Have you checked that the power is gonna work? Where are you gonna put it? So they're building out a little project plan so that they can implement it. Validating that the idea can work or in what shape or form it could work. I love that you're bringing in design thinking. So you're basically saying, you know, is the idea desirable? Is the idea feasible? Is the idea sustainable? And by looking at the design thinking lens, we can bring in design thinking and financial literacy because they're building out the the micro budget of that idea. And of course they're kids, right? So some of the ideas are gonna be goofy. We did one program at a middle school where one of the kids is like, wouldn't a duck pond be cool? Well, it might be cool, but you're not gonna put a duck pond in the middle of a city, right? So, you know, you're gonna throw out the ideas that are silly and that's okay. Well, I think part of it too is, I mean, what's great about that is, is as you point out, they're getting engaged, right? They're starting to 
come up with possibilities and that creates the space for you know tangible stuff to emerge but sometimes you gotta you gotta think beyond the normal or outside of the box to even get to something worth doing yeah i'm gonna come back to that because it's it's about pedagogy and it's about why adults especially adults who care about homeschooling or alternative schooling forms should care about participatory budgeting the next phase is where the adults kick in so once the ideas are refined there is an adult reviewing the final voting ballot. And the reason the adult views it is and reviews it is we want to make sure that the items that are on the ballot will be implemented if selected. I'll give you a concrete example. One group of kids wanted to get new microscopes for the chemistry lab. The teacher who reviewed it said, no, 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 we don't want you to, to, to choose that because next year, we're gonna refurbish the chemistry lab as part of our school improvement plan. So you shouldn't spend your money on that. Go spend your money on other things. And the kids were unaware. So this isn't like some nefarious, like the parents are controlling it or the teachers are controlling it, is they're helping and guiding the kids. The voting ballot is created, the kids vote, and whatever wins gets funded and implemented. And the kids make great choices. The kids going back to Hegel Elementary School, they chose things like soccer nets for their playground and fidget toys for the classroom, which I thought was fun. Schools have chosen libraries and pergolas and seating and improvements to their bathrooms and, and student rec rooms and painting murals and school spirit. Lots of really great stuff. So I want to go back to that notion of what you talked about. As parents, we've all had that experience of, of kids getting excited about a thing and learning more than you could possibly imagine learning about it because of the internet. So you get those kids who know so much about dinosaurs or painting or, or how computers work. That's self-determination theory slash intrinsic motivation in action. One of the things that's garbage about a lot of the traditional curriculum is you get these word problems associated with math that relate to financial literacy. Satish and Jamal are going to the market to buy fruit. They have $5. Fruit costs, you know, apples cost 89 cents a pound. How many pounds of apples can Satish and, and Jamal buy? But when you go back to participatory budgeting and those kids want to get fidget toys, that's really interesting. There's a lot of fidget toys on Amazon how much are you willing to spend? How much per student? What's appropriate? If you got these high-end fidget toys, you would have less in your budget to do other things. But if you got this low-end fidget toy, you know it would break. So you're actually talking about legitimate education through something that was motivated by the kids' own choices. And that's super exciting. Yeah, that makes all the difference. And that's all the difference between, you know, like I said, like a sample exercise with pretend money versus like real cash. I mean, even just, even just, I think I can imagine as a kid, as a group of, of kids being like given money from a higher you know, organization or, or whatever source being entrusted with that to make decisions, even that in and of itself must have quite an impact on the kids. It does. I think that, you know, we can talk about some of the more potentially controversial topics. For example, some families, many families use allowances. Uh, I'll ask you, do you use allowances with your kids or do you not use allowances? You know, I've tried different things. Right now, I, I don't. But in the past, you know, we had done like X amount per month, but it wasn't tied to having to do things. It was just an amount right. that they could. And so, and I've never done allowances, uh, partly because I grew up really 
relatively poor and there wasn't any money to have an allowance. So I didn't grow up with allowances. My wife also did not grow up with allowances. And so because we didn't grow up with allowances, we didn't use allowances. Now, some of the financial gurus in the world say that you don't want to just give allowances because that can create a negative expectation. Some people create systems whereby kids doing chores earns money. I'm not necessarily, uh, that's again, it, that's not what I choose. I'm not saying it's wrong if other people choose it because I think the way I was raised was the house needs everyone to help to function. So as being a member of our house, it's more of a citizenship thing. You're a member of the house, so you have chores and everyone has chores. Mom has chores, dad has chores, you have chores. Yeah, it's but same, what same I, in our house. Yeah, but what I did do with my wife is when there was like an extraordinary thing, or frankly, when my kids were doing work for my companies, <laughs> right. I would pay them. Sure. Because if yep. I'm gonna if if I'm gonna go hire a worker for minimum wage to do a task for my company, and I hire my kid, I'm gonna pay him the same I would pay a worker. Because to me, that strikes as fairness. And I'm asking them to do something that's not part of the house; it's part of the company. So my kids have grown up at times doing work for the company, but they all have jobs now. Every one of them has a, a summer job. And what I found was that because they're used to managing their own money, those early life skills are starting to come through where they spend money, but they tend to spend it pretty well. And they're also pretty clever. On Monday night, I took everyone out to see Black Widow. I said, okay, everyone, who's, who's going to come to the theater? And the first question from the kids is, well, who's paying? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? Well, you're asking, why should we have to pay? Make this a dad treat. And I'm like, okay, fine, dad treat. Yeah, that's 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 being sharp. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah, it are, it's similar for us too. Like any kind of treats or, or extra things, whatever. That, that was part of, you know, giving them the, the money at the time was anything extra they wanted was kind of on their own in that sense. Right. And and so they did have some money. And, and of course, you know, in the modern world, they can get money and they can. It's easier for them to get jobs. And sometimes they get gifts from grandma and grandpa or aunts and uncles or birthdays or holidays or whatever. So if we summarize, participatory budgeting is a pretty magical process because it includes design thinking, as you pointed out, what's desirable, what's feasible, what's viable. It includes civics. Who should be involved? How are we voting? Our civics curriculum, for example, has a discussion on voting algorithms. And this is a little for more advanced ages, right? You may not have a lesson on voting algorithms for a fourth grader or a fifth grader, but for a 10, 11, 12th grader, you can talk about majority versus rank choice versus vote swapping. I mean, there's all sorts of voting algorithms and they have different impacts on uh, the outcome of, of people's choices. So we want to have conversations with uh, the kids about these topics because we want them to be informed citizens. And then, of course, it does include financial literacy, right? There's, it's very basic. There's $6,000 in our school budget for participatory budgeting. And do we want to get one big item or five small items? Well, that's the voting process, and, and kids have to make that choice. Now, bringing it to families, our software is... Yeah, go just, ahead. Just before maybe you jump to, yeah. to, to family, because I do want to touch on that as well. One question I have, and you know, it comes, it comes from um, Stacy, uh, who's kind of leads up like the entrepreneur part of Galileo, which is sort of an online self-directed education type school that my son Graham goes to. And so I was posting in the, in the parent forum about 
what you're doing. And we were having a conversation a bit around, you know, well, how, how could this work in a participatory budgeting work in like where you have a virtual school? And, and in their case, you know, students get to choose which classes they want to go to. There's no mandatory participation. So she was trying to figure out, yeah, how, how it could work in, in that setting where you've got like a global virtual school. You're not dealing with having to purchase, you know, like 3D printers and things like that. Any thoughts? Well, we've done that with a couple of similar virtual schools. And uh, one idea that has been proven to be valuable is kids are very philanthropic naturally, right? They have big hearts, almost universally. And so this global virtual school said that they were going to get money, but they were going to try and find something associated with a cause that they believed in. And for whatever reason, their cause that they ended up focusing on was animal rights. Turned out a lot of the kids were just animal lovers. Now, not every kid was, but what you find in it, just like adults, sometimes you, you want to participate, but you don't have to lead the selection of the area in which you participate. Like, I may not love dogs, but if enough people love dogs, I'll be like, yeah, I can support dogs. So they're working on a PB program associated with animal rights, and they're going to try and find a set of specific initiatives that they can fund with either in a given location, right? Again, just because you're global doesn't mean you're unwilling to fund a program in a location that you're that's outside of your area. Like one kid might come up with a, my city really needs the dog part cleaned up. And the project to clean up the dog part would cost $700 and now they learn advocacy. And so this is, again, an opportunity for parents and teachers to, to actually educate. When does advocacy become coercion? When does coercion become bullying? How do I advocate? What do I say to other people? How do I present information to convince, to educate them and convince them that this is worthy of their support? These are all powerful life lessons for our children to learn. So that's my answer to how would a global virtual school gain benefit from this? Yeah, no, that's really cool. I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, let's let's delve into a bit for for families. Um, I know if, like my kids, you know, trying to talk about financial stuff and, and budgeting uh, is about as ex exciting as uh, wallpaper. But uh, yeah, so well, <laughs> one of the things that we find, and I found with my own kids, is that parental choices can be very mystical to kids if you don't explain them, and you know. I'm not going to get on the bandwagon and, and try and present some kind of a mythical perfect parent. You get up, you go to work, you had a rough day at work, you come home, and I've had those days, and I'm sure you had too. You walk in the door, and it's not, hi, dad, welcome home. It's, hi, dad, there's a leak under the sink. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, I had a tough day at work. Not a hi, dad, not a dinner's ready, but, you know, put on your work boots and get, so you're tired. And so what that means is we don't always have the opportunity to explain our choices to our children, and children don't always understand the context in which we make our choices. So let's go back to just financial literacy, and let's talk about one concept in two contexts. The concept is a loan. Now, context one is I'm going to make a home improvement. And imagine you sit down with your partner, and in my case, I'm, my partner is my wife. So I sit down with my wife and we decide we want to make a home improvement and we're going to get a home improvement loan. And this is what our kids hear. And they do hear what we're talking about. 
They know that we're taking a loan. Mom and dad, what's a loan? Oh, well, you know, it's where you go to the bank, you get some money, and we're going to pay it back. But this gives us the amount of money that we need to, to do our home improvement. We're going to pay it back. That's a completely understandable thing to a kid, right? A week later, it's time to talk about the, the family vacation. And the kid says, hey, you know, mom and dad, what are we going to do for vacation this year? Oh, well, you know, our budget's a little lower this year. So rather than going somewhere special, we're going to do a staycation. We're going to kind of drive around and visit things that are local. Well, why don't we get a loan? Because in their mind, they've just seen us get a loan to get what we wanted called a home improvement. And mom and dad, in this case, are going to be, I'm going to put them as a good financial model. They're going to say, well, no, we're, we're not going to get a loan for a vacation. Why? Right there is, is where the tired, naturally human parent is going to say, because I said so, we're just not going to get a loan for a vacation. Now, the model perfect parent is going to say, well, let me explain. This loan is different than this loan, even though they both result in money because this loan creates value. It creates a better lived environment. We're paying it over time. We're getting value over time. This is a loan, like getting a loan for a wedding. And if you get that loan for a vacation, you just taught your children the, the path towards credit card debt because it says, if I don't have money for something that I feel like I want, just get a loan to get it. And, and these are what we're trying to do in our family edition. So in our family edition, we took three concepts that families can do together, planning a family vacation, planning charitable donations, and planning a home improvement, and we mapped them against core financial concepts of, for example, the notion of taking a loan, the notion of a budget that is a one-time expense or a, you know, capital expenditure or an operating expense. Many times, a home improvement is a capital expense and a family vacation is like a capital expense because it's one time. We're also mapping in concepts of when you make this choice, what are the additional total costs of ownership? And you and I both know you can't go to an amusement park based on the amusement park ticket price because that's where it's, thank you, it's where it starts. And so now you get a chance to talk to the kids to say, oh, we want to go to the amusement park. Okay, great. How many people in the family are going? Uh, for us, for me, six. Okay, so what's the total cost? It's not one ticket. It's one ticket times six. Okay, what about food? Should we have a little bit of a budget for souvenirs? I like souvenirs. I like shirts. I, I do, by the way. I actually like getting shirts at places I visited. I think it's fun. And so, as you just said, that's the start. Those are opportunities to teach our kids. So the family edition of First Root, and it's free. We're a benefit corporation, as you mentioned in our introduction, and I appreciate that you mentioned it. Our family edition is free because we want to promote financial literacy in the home. So it's free up to eight participants. And so you can download it on an iOS app, Android coming soon. You can go to the website and learn about the family edition and start to use it to engage in these activities with your kids. Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's a good point too. It's actually a, a mobile app, which that in and of itself is going to make it more fun and appealing for, for kids. So Luke, I know we just got a couple more minutes, so I want to be respectful of your, your time. So just want to also point out too that, I mean, you're you're really early in, in going here. You're a startup. You're you're also looking for people who like to um, invest in. You have a an option for people to do that as well? Yeah, we do. So 
we are a Silicon Valley company. And in my last company, I did raise some capital. And when I exited the company, that's Silicon Valley language for when I sold the company, I was very proud to return a return a good return, much better than the stock market would give you a return to our investors, right? So it's that risk reward structure. Um, I've had two actual successful exits. So I'm pretty good at, uh, so far, my track record is pretty good at creating a financial return for our investors. So we're doing what's called a equity crowdfunding on net capital and the equity crowdfunding, and you can get at it to our website, but the equity crowdfunding is kind of like Kickstarter or Indiegogo, but there's a big difference. In Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you're funding a product. In equity crowdfunding, you're actually buying stock in our company before we have a public offering. And so it's controlled and monitored and regulated by the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. So it's it's an SEC regulated option and people can come in for a very modest amount of money, less than you would spend on a, out, on a meal out, outside to any amount of money that you want. And what's exciting about this is it's part of philosophically aligned with our notion of creating a community-based initiative. So participatory budgeting in a family is about engaging the family. In a school, it's about engaging the school. As you pointed out, in a city, it's about engaging the city. So we're applying that philosophy to the actual creation of our company. And what's really exciting is is that that's building a shared community of people who really care about these concepts. And we would be thrilled if any listener wanted to come in and, and be an early investor in the company. So where can they find out more information, uh, Luke, to you know either get uh, involved with investing in your company or you know download the the family version or or even you know approach the their best school. way to go is just our website uh, www.firstroot. So it looks like that firstroot. <laughs> uh, .co. So not .com, but .co. Firstroot.co. We'll have that in the show notes as well. Well, Luke, I really appreciate you coming on today. And I'm so glad you haven't retired yet because you have so much to give to the world and and you're truly making a difference in the lives of families, schools, and uh, greater society. So thanks so much for all you're doing. Thank you so much, Jerry.